Uh, hey everyone, we're back with uh, another industry titan today. They don't come much bigger than this. Uh, Mr. David Birch joins us all the way from the UK, uh, talking about central bank digital currencies, digital currencies as a whole, and uh, what the, 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 the kind of pros and cons are of these. But before we get into that, uh, you know, a big part of any kind of digitization or really any part of the ecosystem is around financial crime. Um, we're fortunate enough to be sponsored by uh, the wonderful people and team at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, who provide a plethora of different products and services to combat financial crime. So if you are looking at solutions or you're interested in getting an audit done on your business, then please do reach out to Lex LexisNexis Risk Solutions, uh, links at the bottom, and uh, uh, they'll take very, very good care of you. Um, be sure to mention you heard them on Talking Success. Um, anyway, let's uh, let's get on to this week's show. Um, Mr. David Birch, everyone. Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Success. Um, we're still very much on our uh, fintech titans or fintech legends theme, uh, not to blow too much smoke in the direction of, uh, of the man sitting on the other side of the screen. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, I'd love to introduce you to Mr. Dave Birch, uh, who I'm going to ask him to introduce himself in a minute. Um, Dave and I haven't met before. Um, however, after searching my... Um, my inbox to see whether I communicated with him other than all the sort of newsletters I get. Uh, transpires, Dave, that we have spoken before, and I don't know if you remember, but we spoke on uh, this little platform during COVID called Clubhouse. Remember Clubhouse? Oh, you know, I do remember Clubhouse. Whatever happened to that? I have no idea, but I deleted it from my phone a while ago, and uh, I've not been back on since. I think it was, uh, you know, a COVID uh technology or uh, epiphany so uh, we did speak no, and, I, um, I used to kind of listen to it like the radio when i was like cooking or something i'd go to one of the i mean there'd be people talking about cryptocurrency or whatever yep. and you just kind of listen in on it um yeah that was kind of fun for a while and then it sort of went away it was we had that we had the fintech and payments club if you remember uh, with james sherwin smith from mastercard um who was oh, I and uh we, we we hosted this like four or five rooms a week um i think everyone was just sort of got cabin fever and just wanted to uh talk to humans uh i do sort of remember james uh yeah. invite i mean because i remember I, I i i somehow clicked the wrong thing i ended up in how to marry rich men and it was so interesting i, I was listening to that instead and so i got a bit sidetracked but um but yes no well, i remember clubhouse it was fun well there you go so we have kind of spoken albeit nice um, before so it's, it's nice to put a, a face to a voice and to uh, to a profile picture um I, I do follow you on instagram as well through provoke and uh, i kind of see lots of your content um anyway that's enough about me gushing um dave I'd uh, love to uh, you do a quick intro to our audience. Um, before we get into this, though, this is completely unscripted. Um, uh, a, a minute or so ago, they said, well, what are we chatting about today? And I said, oh, just tech stuff. Um, so this is completely unscripted. I've obviously got a few questions I, I do want to pose. But um, before I go into that, Dave, please, uh, if you could do an intro, that'd be great. Sure. It's easy. Well, I, you know, I'm an author, advisor and commentator on digital financial services. I've been a consultant in the space. For a long time i've written a couple of books got a new book coming out in april as it happens we'll get around to that later on yeah absolutely. um and you know a few years ago i i stopped being a consultant first uh, you know full time um and so i'm an advisor here and there i'm on a couple of boards and advisory boards and so i have a reasonable i mean i think i have a reasonable perspective on fintech both from the startup side where i'm involved in some startups and both and from the more institutional side as well. So that's that's kind of my and I I write in Forbes and Financial World and various other places. Uh, and now you're on talking success. So clearly the highlight of your career. I, I finally made it. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I finally made it. <laughs> so thanks for the intro. Um, now I reached out to you last week and said, look, I, I've just recorded a, a podcast with one of your uh, one of your friends uh, from across the pond, Mr. Shevlin, and we were talking about numerous different aspects of sort of fintech and what's happening in the US and what sort of the trends he's seeing. And um, naturally, we got onto the topic of central bank digital currencies. And uh, Ron said, listen, I am not the expert in this. You need to speak to Dave because he knows this better than anyone in the world. Um, so if you've got questions around CBDCs, um, pose them to Dave uh, and he'll be able to 
explain, um, I suppose, from a, a fundamental perspective, you know, what this is in layman's terms, um, and then some of the um, sort of directions that this could go into. And I think there's, there's obviously within industry, there's a lot of positivity around CBDCs. And then when you talk to um, economists and people that perhaps aren't as connected to the technology side, there's actually quite a bit of worry about this, um, about programmable money, which we'll come into, about state control, et cetera, et cetera. So um, maybe for the first sort of part of this podcast, Dave, if, if we could delve into sort of the world of CBDCs, um, uh, everyone's got a different sort of explanation of, of what this is. And I, I do remember, funny enough, that the podcast that, sorry, the Clubhouse session that we were on, I asked you a question, which was something along the lines of, um, isn't currency already already digital because I've got it in my phone and it's already in digital form? What is the real difference between that and what we're classing as a central bank digital currency? Um, if, if you could, again, sort of unpack that, maybe start at sort of layman terms, what a CBDC is, um, and, and then we'll see how the sort of conversation goes. Okay. Um, well, the way that I think would be useful to do that is to start. Um, <clears throat> I'll start in a slightly different place. You'll see why in, in a moment. But um, let's just forget about CBDC for a second and just talk about two things, because I'm a horrible nerd about this sort of thing. So, you know, people say digital currency, electronic cash, electronic money, you know, digital pounds, and that they kind of mix all those things together. But because I'm a horrible nerd, um, these all mean very different things to me. So I want I want to start by talking about two things. And those two things are electronic money and electronic cash. Okay. So the crucial distinction between those two things is electronic money is something that lives in bank accounts. You know, you, you say you have it on your phone, but you don't really have it on your phone. I mean, I've got my Wise app on my phone. Yep. And my Wise app shows a balance of whatever it is, £165 or something. But the £165 isn't actually in my phone. It's in a bank account somewhere. Sure. So electronic money lives in bank accounts. And when you move electronic money from one place to another place, it goes from one bank account to another bank account, and it goes through the banking networks. So in the UK, you know, instant payments, you know, chaps, backs, this sort of thing. Yeah. So that's electronic money. And uh, that's pretty much all the money there is. I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but I think in the UK, something like 97% of all money is that electronic money. And there's a rump 3%, which is which is in cash. And actually, you know, half of that, well, more than half of that, isn't actually used for any sort of transactional purposes. So so the amount of sort of functional cash in the economy is is vanishingly small. So that's electronic money. Then you have this other idea of electronic cash. And the idea of electronic cash is it actually does live in your phone or, you know, wherever else. And if I send an electronic fiver from my car to your phone or from my hat to your badge or from my house to your summer palace in the south of France or wherever, it actually goes from one to the other. It doesn't go through the banking network. Sure. When I send you five pounds in electronic money, it goes from my bank account to your bank account. Was I did with my sister the other day. She, you know, I, I owe whatever it was, 40 quid for something. So she sends me the sort code and account number. Yep. And then I type that in a, a bit like a, you know, well, I would have done 25 years ago, frankly. Um, <clears throat> and the money wends its way through the banking network and ends up in her account. And actually, because the UK has instant payments and instant payments works pretty well, by and large, that's it, you know. So yep. she... Or, or, you know, when the, the plumber came around the other day to fix something, you know, he gives me his sort code and account number. I put it into my mobile banking, send it to him. You know, it's there in a couple of seconds. Yep. But it's gone through the banking networks. And there are some issues with that. Um, one of which is obviously cost. Those, those networks cost money. The transactions aren't free. Instant payments are free to consumers in the UK, but of course, they're not free to the banks. They, you know, somebody's paying for it. And there's an issue to do with resilience as well, because that's the only path. So if, if the banking network goes down for any reason, you're a bit stuck. Um, and there are some things to do with innovation as well, which is 
you know, banking networks are critical national infrastructure. You don't really want to muck around with them. And building new things on top of them can be quite difficult because obviously we want that to be constrained and regulated and so on. So electronic money works fine. It doesn't work in every situation. Electronic cash, on the other hand, wouldn't use the banking networks at all. Okay. So as I said, the five pounds goes from my phone to your phone. It goes, could go over the internet, could go over Bluetooth, could go over 5G, or it doesn't really matter. But crucially, if the internet goes down or there is no mobile network and we can't get a signal, um, I can still send the five pound from my phone to your phone. Mm -hmm. If there's no electricity, you know, whatever, as long as I can get you on Bluetooth or, you know, whatever, however it works, NFC, UWB, doesn't matter. Yep. So electronic money is account to account. Electronic cash is device to device. It's person to person. It doesn't go through a network. And um, at a very high level in a modern economy, we actually want both of those. We want both of those to be up and running and functional. And I can certainly see a situation where actually in the future, since most people neither know nor care about any of this, yep. um, they wouldn't really, you know. So, you know, you could imagine a situation where you walk out of little. The little app pops up on your phone. It says you owe £27.50p. You know, you put your thumb on it or look at it or whatever it is. To send the money. And you have absolutely no idea whether that money's just gone from your mobile phone to Lidl's till via no. electronic cash. It might have gone through the sort of debit card network and been pulled from your debit card into... Um, into Lidl, um, or it might have been pushed over the instant payment network from your bank account to Lidl's bank account. You wouldn't know anything about it. Either way, no. you know, there's £27 gone from your bank account and it's shown up in Lidl's bank account. And the reason why I like using that example is because every single week, including last week, there'll be a story in one of the newspapers about how nobody could use their cards at Tesco because somebody had unplugged Visa to do the vacuuming or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So the idea that you have these kind of resilient and, and people wouldn't need to know. They don't sort of care about that. Sort and of do thing. they care? At one level. Care. People don't care. Right. I mean, they got they, they got other things to think about. Yeah. So there you've got electronic money and electronic cash. Now, when we talk about electronic cash, um, of course, we don't actually have that at the moment. And there are a couple of different ways we could get it. So one is we could use something that's going on in cryptocurrencies. You know, we could build something on top of uh, Ether or Bitcoin or something like that and make that work. Um, I mean, historically, that doesn't look like what's going to happen because those cryptocurrencies are too volatile to use in that kind of environment. So people want what they call stable coins. Uh, they, they want something that has a, a more predictable value. And if you're going to have stable coins you know, which I think is not a bad idea. If you're going to have a stable, a stable coin pound, then it could be provided by the private sector or it could be provided by the public sector. Okay. Let's have a look at both of those ideas for a moment. So, and, and actually I quite often, I quite often think back, it, it, it's illustrative to think what happened in the industrial revolution, I think as a, as a guide here. So, in the Industrial Revolution, there wasn't money in circulation. We could be, we'd gone into a money economy, but we didn't actually have the money in circulation. It was a big problem. So in the in the old days, in the old days, you know. So so what happened was companies there were, there were no there were no low value coins in circulation, and so companies began to make them themselves. They, they would get Welsh, they would get um, copper from the Welsh copper mines. Most of these coins were made in and around Birmingham and they would make these copper pennies, some of which were quite elaborate because the, the penny makers would use the, the pennies to advertise their skills as, um, well, uh, as makers of coins and metal buttons and things like that. And these things went into circulation because there was a demand for them. But of course, when it gets competitive in that space, you, you can't charge much more than a penny for a penny. So yeah. the ability to make any money out of that um, is, isn't really there. And so you have to look at other ways of making money. And 
using the coins as adverts would, would be one way of doing that. But um, So what happened was eventually the Mint stepped in and started making copper coins. You know, eventually they're a public good. You're not going to make a living out of them. So you step in and, and, and you make the copper coins. And whether you make money on them or lose money, it doesn't matter because that's not the point. The point is to provide the public good. I'm yeah. sure you read the thing the other day, as I, you know, how much it now costs pennies to make in the US. I think it's, it now costs 11 cents to make a nickel or something like that. I mean, Crazy. but you don't do it to make money. You do it to provide the public good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that sort of leads me to think, well, we could have private companies providing the digital pound. We could have a Barclays digital pound and a Midland, ba Midland Bank. Midland Bank. I was going to say, Dave, now you really are showing your age, right? Midland Bank. I'll explain to you in a moment why my brain was misfiring around Midland Bank. I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, and you, you, know, you could have different companies making digital pounds and, and competing, but, I, you know, what, what's the point? I mean, to compete, they'd have to do what? Like use your personal data for something or... Yeah, I don't know. So and, and and what happens if they, you know, they can't make any money out of it, they'll get out of the market. So why not just short circuit the whole thing and have the Bank of England provide the digital pounds? Basically, that's the sort of thinking that goes on there. So okay. you want electronic cash, one form of electronic. cash. I mean, I'm sure there'll be lots of other forms of electronic cash, but one form of electronic cash that we need to support, um, you know, commerce is um, some form of digital pound. And if you're going to have some sort of digital pound, you might as well have it done by the central bank. Digital dollar, I think, actually is an even more interesting illustration of this because you have to remember, first of all, you have to remember there are more $100 bills in circulation than there are $1 bills. There is an awful lot of US currency mm. in circulation, most not in the US, and it'll never be repatriated. So US currency represents a colossal interest-free loan from the rest of the world to Uncle Sam. So whereas we tend to think about a digital pound as a way of making reducing transaction costs domestically, you do have to bear in mind there are international implications. There are an awful lot of people around the world who are messing around with Tether and Bitcoin and, you know, this sort of what they actually want is dollars. And once they can get digital dollars, that's what they'll hold. So so the digital pound and the digital dollar and the digital euro and they're all they have different dynamics around them, you know, because of because you've got these international issues and sovereignty and so on, as well as the domestic things. So if we come from my funnel down, we have electronic money, we have electronic cash, we have electronic cash, we have all sorts of things. And one category of things is stable coins. We have private stable coins and public stable coins. And eventually you, you follow that path down and you end up at some sort of digital pound, which I think is really not a bad idea. And, you know, generally speaking, I think the Bank of England's approach is laudable i mean i mean i'm paraphrasing myriad reports but um but it's important for the future it's uh, generational change in how we use money mm. um there's no burning platform we don't need it tomorrow uh, so it's better to spend the time thinking about it and developing you know a digital pound that supports the future economy and reconciles the interests of multiple stakeholders, which is a complex issue, rather than have something tomorrow. So, yeah, so all things considered, I think the digital pound is a good idea. Um, I don't, we don't need it tomorrow. So spending some time thinking about how a digital pound should work is, is time well spent, essentially. And Dave, in, in your experience, I've got loads of questions, but in, in your experience and what you've seen, certainly in the UK, um, do you feel that central banks, again, in the UK or across Europe or even across the world, um, are moving or having these conversations and building these sandbox environments and uh, these sort of closed beta environments um, because of the concern of the private sector or the crypto sector, whether we lump them together, I don't know, uh, or the decentralized sector, um, moving at a pace, moving at a rapid pace? Is, is there concern that actually if they don't maneuver make a move and maneuver and start innovating and start looking at the digital pound or the digital euro or digital dollar um that they may actually sort of lose that ability to control um you know treasury within countries is, is, is that a concern or do you think that's actually it's just coincidental
Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. No, I mean, I think I think that's quite genuine. I mean, I think there, there were experiments with electronic cash before, and the most notable one in the UK, which is, of course, why Midland Bank came into my head. The most notable one in the UK was in the 1990s with Mondex, which was, you know, NatWest and um, MasterCard and various other people. Um, and I can remember being involved in a couple of projects around looking at the use of electronic cash to replace, um, you know, various kinds of banking payments here and there. And for one reason or another, that didn't really move move forward but um but it certainly showed that the technology of it all worked so if we if we have a look at that technology but in a more modern context that means using uh, tamper resistant hardware in mobile phones to provide security to yeah. allow money to move from secure device to secure device i mean with with an, you know an appropriate auditing and, and this kind of thing um and that that looks like it would work. And I, I remain unconvinced about digital currencies, uh, about cryptocurrencies in that context. But I'm rather a fan of sort because of, of the volatility around the market, or because of the the technology and the infrastructure, or the lack of governance. Well, and... I, I just, it is because of volatility and so on. But also, there's this fun. I was just reading a paper yesterday, the the FinCEN paper on governance. You know, it it would be a, an odd turn of events if, I don't know, you know, the digital pound is up and running on, let's say, Ethereum for sake of argument, and 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 you you know, you 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 pop round you pop round to the news agent to to buy a pint of milk, and everyone's playing crypto kitties, so it takes two hours for the transaction to complete. I mean, there's nothing quite right, mm. or if you know some group of developers somewhere decide that your running dog lack is of imperialist capitalism. And so all of your transactions are going to get queued behind transactions from North Korea or, you know, no end of scams in the mempool take over. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, I, I'm, I'm very, very bullish about digital assets and tokenization. I think the whole kind of tokenization web three thing, the whole, I think that's really got legs. Because the idea of, of trading assets without clearing and settlement has clear financial advantages. It's cheaper. I mean, it's not an ideological thing. So, so I can sort of see the utility there. But on the cryptocurrency side, I'm still, I'm still slightly skeptical. I, I read a thing this morning saying, you know, some, I won't say any names or whatever, but there, there was a thing this morning that says, you know, some billionaire buying a, a few million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And the headline said, you know, this shows that it's now mainstream. And it, no, it doesn't. It shows that billionaires have a couple of hundred billion to gamble on cryptocurrencies. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, and they all, they they bought it when it was low. They sold it when it was 60,000 and made an absolute killing. But as far as I know, every statistical analysis shows that most crypto wallets are still underwater. And, and you've just seen a vast transfer of wealth, largely from poor and marginalized people who were missold the idea of cryptocurrency as an alternative to the financial system to a bunch of, frankly, rich white guys. So I, you know, I'm, I'm open to argument on this, but right now I'm, I'm just very skeptical on cryptocurrency. Digital so, assets, uh, I think, is a different story. I think, um, again, bring, bringing it back sort of to home. So, Dave, I, I probably didn't even mention this when we spoke, but I, I'm based in South Africa. Um, you know, my, uh, my sort of market or, or our audience is, is pretty much focused on the continent, whether it's in Kenya or Nigeria or South Africa or Tanzania or Ghana, wherever, in, anywhere else. And um, where we talk sort of here on the continent about CBDCs, digital currencies, and we talk about crypto, um, 
One of the big drivers around certainly crypto adoption, aside from the trading and, you know, get rich quick schemes is, is remittance. Okay, is being able for me to send money to Zimbabwe or to Uganda or wherever it may be at a fraction of the cost and, you know, uh, a fraction of the time that it currently takes me to go to a, you know, typical, you know, uh, sort of um, uh, money transfer operator where I have to queue at a little booth. Um, we see them at the airports, you get stung for, you know, crazy rates and uh, it takes forever to get through. Um, so when we're looking at CBDCs um, across a continent, and obviously we've got the euro, um, we don't need to go into Brexit, I'm not going to have that conversation with you, but we've got, um, uh, we, we've got the euro, we've obviously got the, the, the US dollar. Um, there is talk, and I think it is just talk at this stage about having a uh, an African currency or a BRICS currency. Um, I think that's we're probably still going to be talking about that in twenty years' time, um, but I think that does make some uh, that does make sense to be able to use um, a different form of payment rail to enable people to move money cross border. As long as obviously the compliance is there and the AML is there and the KYC is there and you know it's all compliant and, and regulated, um, do you feel that that? Um, user case would accelerate the adoption of digital currencies in whatever form, as you've just discussed? Um, or do you think there's still the traditional rails that uh, because of the sort of security they offer and because of all of the governance and the reporting standards still play a pivotal role when it comes to remittance? I mean, I think if remittances were a dominant use case for cryptocurrencies, then then it would already have happened. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you look at places where there where there is actual, I mean, a, a really good example to look at is El Salvador, because remember in El Salvador, they they decided to make Bitcoin compulsory tender. Like you, it's not legal tender; it's compulsory tender. You have to accept Bitcoin. But if you look and, 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 you know, remittances cost a fortune and, you know, poor people are being ripped off and all this kind of thing. But if you look at the figures, the proportion of remittances in Bitcoin, which was small anyway, is actually going down, you know, because the thing is that the, the cost of remittances isn't really the cost of payment. You hit the nail on the head earlier on. Like the, the cost of remittances is the cost of KYC, AML, CTF, PEP. Customer service, transaction and support, you know, it's, it's like, does it really make much difference whether you send it, you know, through some banking thing or whether you send, well, it's, you know, maybe it does make a marginal difference, but it can't make that much of a difference because if it did, you know, everyone would be using it. And actually, I wrote a thing recently because I saw, I was reading a story on the, the web from a guy and he was using Argentina as the example because Argentina is a very interesting example where people have used Bitcoin historically as a means to evade exchange controls. Um, and he said, well, you know, I offered to, I, I owe my friend some money. I offered to send him some Bitcoin. He has a Bitcoin wallet, but he said, no, he wanted tethers. And you think that sounds kind of a bit weird because, you know, Bitcoin is the money of the future and it can't be debased and blah, blah, blah. And the guy wanted tethers. Um, but of course, what the story tells you is the guy didn't really want tethers. He wanted dollars. It's just what's the yeah. quickest way to get to dollars, you know, and I have to say for all the talk about BRICS currencies and, and so on, you know, for most people in most of the world, most of the time, what they really want is dollars. And so it's a question of, you know, what's the what's the path to get them dollars? Mm. Um, I mean, there were experiments done before. I mean, I, I always think one of the interesting examples from very early on, because I don't even remember, but the consulting company I helped to found, Consult Hyperion actually did the original feasibility study for M-Pesa. So, oh, wow. Okay. You know, so, yeah. So, so I, I saw that from the very, from the very beginning. And you remember BitPesa, you know, yes. came along quite, quite. So it's not that people haven't built these bridges. They have done, but it's just, I don't know. People don't really want Bitcoin. They want dollars. I, I, again, I think um, the off-ramp is, certainly in, in, in this part of the world, um, and maybe it's the same for South America, I, I, I don't know that market at all. Um, but certainly in Africa, it's the off-ramp. So, okay, I can send you USDC or USDT or whatever it may be. Okay, I then need to convert it to my local currency because that's the only way I can spend. Okay, I might 
hold dollars and you know hedge against local currency because I don't want you know too much exposure and that's fine. But if I'm sending my family in Zimbabwe, um, you know, a thousand dollars to pay for school fees, they need to be able to convert that thousand dollars into Zimbabwean dollars, right? How do they go and do that? Um, what is the process? And I think that sort of last leg or last mile is is is, is a big challenge that I don't feel anyone at the moment has. Uh, solved. There's lots of people trying to solve it, um, but you've got to have enough liquidity in market to be able to offer that type of service, which is a big. Well, I mean, it could be bypassed. It could be bypassed completely. I mean, if you if you do the thought experiment, suppose suppose every Apple phone, every Android phone, basically every phone with a secure element. Suppose suppose every every Android smartphone could store digital dollars. Forget forget everything else. If if the even if the Never mind Bitcoin. If the only thing it could store would be digital dollars, then the school in Zimbabwe would just take digital dollars. Why would it bother messing about swapping in and out of Zim dollars? And, you know, if any smartphone can take digital dollars, people would just use digital dollars. This is why I find, you know, and I know it's a complicated topic, but I see a lot of stuff on the Web, particularly it's a very American thing about, you know, we're going to ban non-existent digital currencies. And, you know, we never want a CB, which is very odd because a digital dollar would be an incredible extension of American soft power, in my opinion. I mean, if I was if I was the U.S. government, I'd be all in on a digital dollar. Mm. You know, what what would there be? There'd be countries around the world where there would be no possibility of setting their own monetary policy because the citizens would be holding digital dollars Mm. and no one would care what you do with. No one would care what your interest rates are because nobody's using your currency. So therein lies the problem then, right? I mean, uh, from a sovereignty perspective, from a, um, uh, you know, a GDP or from, uh, you know, reporting standards of a country, if, 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 if the, the currency is effectively wiped out because of having digital currencies whether it be a digital dollar or digital euro whatever it may be how does a how does a country then operate and tax and um sort of survive if uh, if there isn't sort of a local currency of sort well that's you know that's that's a really interesting question um and has a complex answer because sure it, does, yeah. it could well, but you know, there, first of all, there are countries that are dollarized, yeah. you know, Ecuador and, and so on. And in fact, I think the, the the chap who's in charge of Argentina now wants to shut down their central bank and go to dollars instead, doesn't he? So, I mean, there are countries that are already dollarized and they seem to work. Uh, it seems to work okay. But um, but you're right. I think for some other countries, it would be it would be a bit of a challenge. I mean, if you can't see your citizen's wealth, you can't tax it, which, mm. you know, very yeah, problematic. Yeah. In some uh, I, I appreciate that. that's, a, that's a, a, a big debate and a big topic. So we, we won't delve too deep into that. But um, from a consumer perspective, now you started right at the very beginning using the uh, analogy of, of Lidl. And for those people who don't know what Lidl is, it's a, just like pick and pay. It's a supermarket chain. <laughs> Sorry. I should have... uh, that's all right. Yeah, that's fine. Because people are going to say, what's Lidl? Is that a new cryptocurrency? That I've not heard very parochial uh, example. So you use that analogy um, and the consumer doesn't really care. And why should they if it's electronic money or it's electronic cash? It's irrelevant. Um, However, what we're starting to see now, um, and yes, this is prevalent in the UK. I'm going to tell you why in a second. Um, But there is already a bit of a backlash towards, um, and again, in this part of the world, um, a cashless society and uh, removing cash from the ecosystem. Um, now, I thought this was just a, a kind of a, a developing markets issue and maybe a lack of understanding or education around actually the, the benefits of doing this. And then last year, I was driving down, I think it was the M4, I'm sure it was actually the M4. I was in the UK uh, for a bit of a break. And as I'm driving, um, I looked up at one of the bridges over the motorway. <laughs> And in graffiti, Dave, it said, I kid you not, 
say no to CBDCs. <laughs> it was a graffiti, right, across a, across a bridge. I thought, wow, okay, he's reached this far. Um, and anyway, I, I've been keeping a bit of an eye on um, consumer understanding and consumer sentiment around cashless economies, digitization, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just fascinated by that stuff. Um, I've mentioned this a few times with, with different guests, but um, again, a couple of months ago, I saw a page, uh, one of the um, retailers in South Africa said, we're no longer accepting cash. We are cashless. That's it. You know, you can only pay by card. And there's numerous reasons why I'm a massive fan of that security and cost. Da, da, da. Um, the feedback or the comments that were on Facebook was just, I mean, jaw dropping. Um, you know, they're trying to control us and I'll, uh, you know, uh, I'll never go to this shop again or I'll come with a trolley full of, you know, one cent coins and they have to take it because it's legal tender. And there was this backlash from from the public going, actually, we don't want a cashless society because, coming to another topic, um, there is very little trust in financial services and governments, again, in this part of the world. Um, and people say, listen, I would prefer to have the cash in my hand or in my back pocket or under my pillow because I know that um, I'm in control of it. Um, when I put it in a bank, there's, you know, debit orders that go out that, you know, are fraudulent. There's online payments that are made that are fraudulent. You try and get your money back from a bank or a merchant, it's very, very, very difficult. Um, so I suppose to, to sort of phrase the question was, if we're looking at consumer confidence and consumer understanding of something like a CBDC or a digital currency, um, what needs to be done to convince people this is a good thing? Um, and do you think there's also a dark side to this? Do you think that governments could take advantage? Um, do you think that they could turn this into programmable money to say, actually, Dave, listen, you jumped the red light yesterday, so uh, we're going to take 10 quid from you. Um, and you have no, they, they, you have no they, control. They could do that tomorrow. They don't need CBC, CBDC to do that. Okay. Um, I think there's a couple of different things going on there. So is it possible that a that you could design a CBDC to implement... Uh, a sort of Chinese style surveillance society, yeah. the nail that stands out must be hammered down, all this sort of thing. Um, that's obviously true. Um, is it possible that you could design a CBDC that had complete anonymity so that people could transact um, without any consequences? You know, that's certainly true. Yeah. Um, neither of those are desirable outcomes. We want the dial set somewhere in the middle. Um, my my personal feeling is that we want we want privacy, um, but we don't want anonymity. And where that privacy dial should be set is not up to people like me. It shouldn't be up to technologists. It should be a matter for civil society to decide where that is. Mm. And technologists are capable of implementing it either way. On, on the issue about cash, I think it's much more complex than it seems at first. I remember one of the I remember one of the projects to do with M-Pesa in the very early days. Um, and I'd have to go and look it up. I think it was University of Edinburgh who were doing the study. I, I can't remember exactly, but um, but they were doing a study on some sort of transaction costs. And one of the households um, they were looking at, they kept their cash in, in a hole under the ground. Yep. Um, and, it, and it had been eaten by rats. And so they'd lost all of their money. And... The thing is, if you're trapped in a cash economy, there's that thing you say at the Gates Foundation, it's quite expensive to be poor. If you're trapped in a cash economy, you don't have access to good online deals for things. The acquisition and distribution of cash is expensive. Yeah. And of course, if you're trapped in cash, you're the person that gets shaken down. You're the person that gets robbed. You're the person without insurance. So the idea that you're sort of protecting the poor by keeping them trapped in cash, I, I think is wrong. You oh, know? <laughs> and I think that's an argument which says that a CBDC has to be designed uh, in such a way as to, to make life better for people like that, not, not worse. I, I, I agree with that. Mm. Um, the, the idea, I, I have mixed feelings about the, <laughs> and I really shouldn't argue with people about it. It's on LinkedIn all the time, but it is sort of fun. So 
into it. But because on the one hand, it's sort of you know, is there a vast government conspiracy of which I'm part to uh, have see? Well, on the one hand, if there was a vast government conspiracy about anything, I'd find that mildly comforting that they could actually get anything done i mean the useless shower that we've got over here can't even get a train from london to manchester so how they would construct i mean quite how they managed to get taylor swift and her boyfriend to win the super bowl i just don't buy it you know there's, there's some, they can't do anything you know so but the idea that privacy should be built into it i think is right because we want to live in certain kinds of democratic society. We want to live under the rule of law. We don't want a, a hellscape run by crypto warlords. No. So that means I should have the right to transact in private. Um, but if I'm involved in something untoward, the police should be able to go to the court and get a warrant. And the warrant should, you know, find out what was in my wallet and, and so on. That seems quite reasonable to me. And also remember, we have technologies available to us now that we didn't have before. We have technologies like zero knowledge proofs and cryptographic blinding and all this sort of thing. So we have a toolkit, which means we can have security and we can have privacy. Yeah. And personally, I think we should set that bar quite high on both of those. We shouldn't trade them off. We want, we want both of them. And I think that's people's concerns. It's the privacy. Like, I don't necessarily want the government knowing that I frequent this shop or, you know, this nightclub. Not that I do everyone, by the way. I'm just using this as an example. Um, or that, you know, I smoke or that I drink this brand of whiskey or whatever it may be. Right. I, I think there comes a point where people say, listen, now I want some privacy. Um, you know, what That's I spend completely my money true. On the other hand. You, you can see it's also completely reasonable. If, if somebody gets murdered in the nightclub yeah. and the police come along with a warrant and say, can you give us a list of all the people that bought something in the nightclub that night? That's also reasonable. You know, we, we want to live in a society. We don't want to live. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of new Wild West. Well, if the Wild West was all that, we'd still be living in it. I mean, there's a reason why we're not living in the Wild West, yeah. because you know, we want things to be better. So so I think it ought to be possible with informed stakeholders to come up with a design that provides the provided the you know the required levels of privacy the societies we want to live in um with with the appropriate protections um and and the idea that you know we shouldn't allow this at all because oh, somebody has been there well you know you wouldn't say that if you were living in Nazi Germany and I'm like yeah but the problem with Nazi Germany was Nazis. I mean, it wasn't really anything to do with the, the means of exchange. I mean, there wasn't much to do with payments. Mm. Like the problem with Nazis is Nazis. So, so I, I don't see those two things. No, I, I, I think we want privacy. Yeah. I think anonymity would be a catastrophe. Oh, I, using your sort of example, I suppose, if you were in a a restaurant or a nightclub and there was a murder i'm sure they could pinpoint who was actually in that club using gps signals or using oh, i don't want to get there, there is that sort of you know a false sense of anonymity because there there, there is ways obviously of, of of tracking people um dave listen i'm, I'm oh, conscious man. of your time but i i would i would like to um just spend the last couple of moments um because i know you mentioned at the beginning you you kind of got a new book coming out um and this is a great opportunity for a plug. So you, you plug Funny. away. <laughs> well, I've written, uh, my new book is, which I've co-written with um, Victoria Richardson, the digital strategist. Okay. And it's called Money in the Metaverse. And the reason I, I thought it would be good is because I think people were sort of writing the metaverse off a bit. Like, I mean, this is when I was thinking about this last year, because... People played around a little bit with with some stuff, yeah. those bubble people with no legs and whatever. And like, well, this sucks. We're not interested. But the next generation, you know, we, we, we think of like old people like us use Facebook and kids use TikTok. Yeah. You know, it's not quite like that because what kids actually use is Roblox and Minecraft and these proto metaverses already. And with the launch of the Apple um, goggles, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of the metaverse as a place for business is beginning to pull through as well. So I thought 
it'd be interesting to think about. And actually, there's a paper from the Bank of International Settlements released just a week ago, because they didn't know I was writing my book, otherwise I could help them out, um, talking about the need for payments in the metaverse. And that sort of set Victoria and I thinking, well, okay, if that's true, if we're going to be transacting in the metaverse, how is it all going to work? Do we want to come out of the metaverse and use conventional systems a lot of people said well there's a link between the metaverse and the whole kind of digital assets web through because inside the metaverse what you really want to do is exchange um digital assets tokens yeah. um, and so but you can't do that unless you know who people are you know who people are you need to know their reputation so you need the digital identity to work as well and anyway the more we thought about it the more it was kind of an interesting subject to work through so we wrote the book. Um, it's being launched at Money 2020 Asia in Bangkok in April. Um, you'll be able to get copies from all good bookshops and the terrible ones too, I hope. And you can pre-order online right now at London Publishing Partnership, which is our publisher. Wonderful. We'll, we'll definitely put some links. Um, listen, I, I could talk to you all day about... Money in the Metaverse. Remember the title. Money, Money in the, the Metaverse. metaverse. Uh, listen, I, I've, I've debated this until... Uh, I've, blue in the face um i don't get it i don't get the metaverse i really however much i've tried to embrace it and say yes this is the future and yes i'm going to be talking to you dave in a year's time wearing my goggles which just look hideous um well yeah, you won't see the environment <sighs> but the point is if we're both wearing the goggles neither of us will see them because that won't be what we see in the metaverse, you know. True. I saw a review the other time, I can't remember which magazine it was, but a guy said uh, he'd been using his Apple, his new Apple goggles, you know, for the day. And he took them off and he picked up his MacBook and he said it felt like something I'd pulled from the rubble of a Soviet power station. And I wow. think people are underestimating, people are really underestimating this coming... The, the thing about the kind of spatial computing substrate is that you'll have this mixed virtual realities, augmented yeah. realities, mixed realities. Yeah. Um, and they'll and they they'll they'll create many different kinds of metaverses. There won't be a metaverse. You know, there'll be it. There'll be the metaverse where, you know, you go to do watch football games and muck around with your mates. There'll be a metaverse that you or maybe there's a couple that you use for work. There'll be metaverses that you use for talking with family and what's going on. Now, there's not going to be a metaverse. Sure. There's going to be a bunch of different metaverses. Some will be VR, some AR, some mixed reality. But I think people are underestimating just how big a deal it's going to be. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to get you, but I, you know what? Actually, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read your book first and then I'm going to come back to you <laughs> with some questions. Because um, one of the biggest questions I've got, forget the, I look stupid wearing these things. Um, forget that for a moment. But um, if I'm transacting in the metaverse, what currency do I use? How do I pay tax? And who owns the metaverse? Who do I pay tax to? Well, the ownership thing is, that's a crucial distinction because when you're transacting in Roblox or Minecraft or whatever, the person that owns the virtual reality owns all of the assets inside it. But that's not what a metaverse is going to be. In a metaverse, you'll be moving digital assets around with you and the digital identities and reputations as well. So, you know, if, if I mean, let's say, you know, we're watching a soccer game together in the metaverse. We've yeah. both got our goggles on. We feel like we're sitting next to each other in the Etihad. In, in fact, you're in South Africa and I'm in Woking. But we feel like we're sitting next to each other watching the Man City game, which both of us would pay for. Uh, and, you know, I owe you 20 quid for something. I want to be able to, in the metaverse, just hand you the 20 quid. Now, whether that's in the form of a digital asset, a digital currency, some kind of fiat token, but it's going to be in the form of some kind of Web3 decentralized finance there and then. It's not going to rely on transactional. Like if we have to come out of the metaverse to send each other other money through the banking network, I'm mm. not sure about that. I think we want to we want to transact inside it. It's uh, it's fascinating. Listen, maybe after I've read your book, you may have converted me. I mean, I'm, I might be sitting here in six months' time with a three thousand uh, dollar Apple uh, glasses thing. I don't know. Listen, never say never, right? 
let me just show you that uh, somebody said, you know, I, I saw this the other day. Was people saying, well, this is crazy because who's going to pay three thousand dollars for these glasses? Right. And I will, obviously. And so will lots of other people. Yeah. But the point to bear in mind is when I bought my I mean, I'm older than you. But when I bought my first Apple, my very first Apple computer, which was an Apple IIe. Um, well, I used to live in San Francisco, and I can remember going down to the computer dealer. There wasn't Apple stores then. You went to a computer dealer. I went to the computer dealer in the Embarcadero Center to buy my Apple IIe, which I loved. And I remember that, and that was in the early 80s. That must have been about 80, late 82, early 83, something like that. I'd have to look it up to see when they came out, but it's early 80s. But I remember it was $2,500 then for my Apple II. And that's like a million dollars now or something. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a lot. So so would I pay less than I paid for my Apple IIe in real terms to get a pair of those glasses? Absolutely, I will. won't hesitate. When it, when he was arriving then, Dave? Well, unfortunately, uh, due to Apple's fascist nationalist, uh, I, we can't have them in the UK yet, so um, I'm going to have to wait until June or July or something. But uh, well, listen, you're spending three thousand yeah. dollars on a pair of goggles. You might as well spend another couple of thousand and just fly to the states. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll get. Some I'm going to fintech meetup next week in Las Vegas, but oh, are they um, going? Okay. So I would, but uh, but yes, they won't work here. But no, I, I'll I'll get some and so on. You're missing the professional side of it as well. You know, if you're a you know, if you're the guy that came around to try and fix my central heating the other day and you can just put the glasses on and now the guy who's the world expert on that particular type of central heating who's in your head office can put his glasses on and now he can see exactly what the guy's looking at. Oh, no, you need to move the red wire to the yellow wire. No one's going to care about paying $3,000 for that sort of thing. Listen, Dave, you don't need to convince me that you're buying this for R&D purposes and HMRC is going to get a bit of a bill for this. That's fine. It's cool. Um, listen, I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I, I'm going to put some links to, obviously, your bio and your LinkedIn and, obviously, the, the book release as well. Put that all in the description. Um, people, pl please follow Dave on, on LinkedIn. I mean, that's the platform I follow him on. Um, uh, he comes up with a, a lot of content. He's not afraid of, of calling things out when uh, he opposes things or disagrees with things. And uh, I, I've learned a hell of a lot from him over the last few years. And it was great to finally kind of meet him virtually, sort of in the virtual 1.0 world. Maybe uh, in six months' time, we'll be in uh, you know, the metaverse, uh, virtual 2.0. Who knows? But um, David, a big thank you to you for your time. I, I, I really have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. So uh, thank you. And um, yeah, where are we? Friday. Have a nice weekend. You too. Bye. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. 